The best part of the hunting season is finally here. We've waited for this all year long. Now let's make it count with some great gear from our partners. First up, Tacticam is our title sponsor, and their point-of-view cameras are my go-to method for filming my hunts. Their new 6.0 camera has added a 1-inch LCD touchscreen that has totally changed the game for me. Its lightweight design, weatherproof housing, and one-touch operation really simplify the self-filming process and make sure that I have high-quality footage to share with my family and friends. My personal favorite for archery season is two 6.0 cameras, one on a stabilizer mount on my bow and one on a bendy clamp mount for an over-the-shoulder angle. And I pair this with a Tacticam remote so I can turn both cameras on with the push of a single button. To learn more or pick up your 6.0 today, head over to Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Now as the temps begin to drop, I know I'll be hunting in comfort with my Huntworth camo. Huntworth is making high-quality, technical hunting clothing at a fraction of the price of other brands. This time of year, I'm making sure to layer smart. I start with a set of base layers, either the Casper or the Bangor, which I have found to be very comfortable and moisture-wicking. Next, I'll have on either my Elkins midweight top and bottom or my Saskatoon heavyweight top and bottom. Either way, I'm also going to be bringing my Saskatoon vest. And because the hunting often gets better when the weather turns nasty this time of year, the Winstead rain suit lives in my hickory pack all the time. And I can honestly say that this is the best rain suit that I have ever used. You can learn more or grab your Huntworth gear today at HuntworthGear.com. And finally, the Onyx Hunt app is an absolutely indispensable tool for me this time of year. If I'm not in the action, I'm going to be making a move to go find it. And the Onyx Hunt app helps me identify those terrain features that I want to key in on with their latest aerial imagery additions. The app now has fully functional 3D on both iOS and Android, low-resolution satellite images updated every two weeks with historic look-back, and leaf-off imagery, all in addition to the base maps that you've always had in the app. Get more out of your maps this season and know where you stand with the Onyx Hunt app. Now let's get into this week's show. Hey guys, just have a quick announcement. I've got Matt Real from the Wisconsin BHA chapter to give us a quick update about an upcoming event. Matt, what's going on? I appreciate having us, Pierce. Uh, we have the North Country Icebreaker coming up on February 3rd down at Lake Koshkanan. And uh, we're super excited about the event uh, to have a lot of people out and enjoying everything the uh, Wisconsin public waters and woods have to offer. Excellent. What can folks expect from uh, this event coming up? Uh, so the event, uh, again, is Saturday, February 3rd. Uh, it's an ice fishing tournament that hosts all kinds of options. There's multiple tournaments going on, whether you're an avid fisherman or kind of learning to ice fish. Uh, we're going to set up, basically, if anyone's familiar with the lake off Vinnie launch, which is on the north east side of the lake um, there's plenty of public parking public hunting area there as well and we're going to set up basically a base camp off that for people to check in and spend the day on the ice with us uh, in however they see fit and then we'll wrap up the day with a wonderful banquet uh, traditional banquet style event at Kashkanan Mountains Country Club which is just up the road about a mile uh, with a wonderful dinner presentations raffles all the fun stuff Excellent. That sounds like a blast. If folks want to get more information on this, where can they go to find it? So you can certainly go to backcountryhunters.org slash Wisconsin events uh, on our, our website. We'll take you right to it. There's lots of options. There's a family option. 
uh, where kids basically aren't charged anything for that, but they will have plenty of events for kids as well. There's a table option, which I'd certainly uh, push that one a little bit. Uh, table of eight, get your buddies together and, uh, and family, friends, buy a table. You get a little extra bonus for buying a table and uh, should be just a wonderful event. So if you need to find any information through, through the website, there's a QR code to sign up. There should be events, uh, posters at local bait shops, everything like that as well. All right, so that sounds like a fantastic event. Uh, folks, put it on your calendars, February 3rd. Um, look for that information. Go check out the flyer on the website. And we might even be there, believe it or not. We hope you are. And for social media, everything's on our social medias, mainly Instagram. Uh, you can find QR codes, everything to sign up for tickets and get entered that way as well. Excellent. Folks, we'll see you there. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. I'm your host, Pierce Nellis, and this is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. This week, guys, I've got a really, really great treat for you, uh, as I got a chance to sit down with Mr. Kent Boucher of the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the Prairie Farm Podcast, and Hoxie Native Seeds. Kent is an Iowa native who grew up in a family of generational farmers, and although he didn't start hunting until 2015, he's been conservation-minded for his entire life. In this episode, we dive into the importance of prairie ecology, the real benefits of planting prairies, and we even dive into some of the challenges farmers are facing and have been facing for years and how that can make us better conservationists and stewards of the land. After that, we dive into Kent's journey as a first-generation hunter, how he figured things out and really did a lot of his learning in this modern age of hunting and how he's balanced picking up hunting with having and growing a family and the importance of being a great husband and father when learning to hunt. It's a conversation that guys, I, I absolutely loved and I think you are as well, uh, or you are going to as well. One thing I would like to note is that we do talk a bit about Iowa in this podcast. However, the lessons and principles we discuss absolutely translate across the Mississippi over to our neck of the woods. And I really think they kind of do across the the entire midwest uh also one thing to note this episode is a bit longer than our normal episodes but kent was such a wealth of knowledge that i really i, I couldn't help myself we just had to keep going uh lastly kent mentioned several books in our conversation the titles of which i've included in the notes of our episode for any of you guys who want to go and check them out uh also be sure to go follow kent on instagram and check out the first gen hunter podcast the prairie farm podcast and hoxie native seeds to follow along with everything that kent's doing with that said let's get on to the episode all right folks joining me on this week's episode i've got mr kent boucher of First Gen Hunter Podcast, the Prairie Farm Podcast, and Hoxie Seed Company. Kent, how you doing? Doing great, man. I'm, I really appreciate you asking me to come on your show. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your out of your schedule. As I, you know, <laughs> you, you've got a, you've got your hands in a lot of things, man, and you're a busy guy. So I'm glad I was able to to get on your schedule and we were able to make this happen. So thanks for being here. Um, how are things going down there by you? Well, we, we have the fog eating snow that is uh, settled in across the landscape. That's a term my 
father-in-law who lives in New Hampshire. <laughs> That's a term he came up with. They they get to see a lot of fog eating snow every spring, and it's yeah. feeling like spring here, but it's still technically the dead of winter. Right. So uh, it's been, I think we've had almost a 50-degree temperature swing since, um, you know, last week or something like that. Mm-hmm. Negative. I think the coldest I saw it get down to was negative 19. And uh, we're, you know, up in the high 30s anyways now. So Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I was talking to my girlfriend about that and how it, yesterday it, it almost felt like it was March and it was kind of a, a spring day. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is almost comfortable. And she was like, yeah, yeah remember that January is not even over yet though. So we still I have know. to crawl through February to get to, <laughs> to get to the actual warm weather. So who knows what's actually uh, in store yeah. for us, but uh, well, man, we're not here to talk about the weather. Um, I'm still racking my brain exactly on what specifically we're going to talk about here because there's so many different things that you like I said that you've you know that you're involved with um I think to kick things off I want to really focus on well to kick this kick things off I want to start with just let's talk about you and just who you are and what all you've got your hands in sure right there yeah yeah that sounds great um so uh, yep, I live here in South Central Iowa, and I uh, live on my uh, family's farm. Um, I think technically, if if everyone who has been involved with this farm had had lived here, uh, I think technically I would be the fifth generation. But um, the very first person who owned this farm never actually lived here. It was uh, my great great grandfather, and he was living on the neighboring farmstead and he purchased this land um during the uh i think yeah i think it was during the early years of the depression Mm -hmm. and uh whoever owned it at the time bank foreclosed on him and then he bought it off of that foreclosure sale and um he bought it for my great-grandfather um and so they moved here in 1927 and uh, um my grandfather was born in the uh, master bedroom down in the first floor, and uh, he lived here for 84 years. He was sleeping in the room he was born in um, when he okay. moved out, and uh, he's still doing well. He's uh, we're going to celebrate his 87th birthday um, this coming weekend, and oh, um, but you know, old big old farmhouse getting too much for him and grandma to to take care of, and so. Uh, they asked us if we wanted to buy the house and and uh, a couple acres to go with it and move out here and be on the family farm and uh, that was that was too good of a deal to pass on so right. that's that's how we ended up here and uh, for work um, uh, you know I've always wanted to be a farmer my grandpa was a farmer when I was a little kid and and really um, I don't know if the conversation will go this direction but I was privileged in one way to uh, see the last of the small farm era, um, just the last few years of it. Um, most of it was already dead, but, um, there were still the old timers that had survived the farm crisis during the eighties. Um, they, they were in that phase of retirement and most of the guys younger than them, like it, there wasn't enough meat on the bone with the current model of what agriculture is today for them to kind of ride it out until retirement. 
Um, so I was fortunate in that where my grandfather's age class of farmers were, I got to see some of that, you know, I remember there being chickens on this farm. I remember, uh, there being, uh, open air hog lots. Mm -hmm. Um, he was a hog farmer and, uh, I remember, um, uh, you know, just the kind of the charm and the soul that exists on a small farm. And so because of that, um, I wanted to farm, you know, uh, but, uh, that, you know, was viewed as impossible by, by most folks. I'm learning more all the time that that's not necessarily true. Um, uh, there's different ways that you can kind of buck the traditional model for, uh, what farming is now. I, or, I don't know if we should say traditional, but what the accepted model is for farming now, and you can do some alternative cropping. And, uh, that's what I do now for a job just on a different farm. Sure. Uh, about 20 minutes away, I work at Hoxie Native Seeds. And, um, uh, my boss, who is uh, one of my favorite people in the world, um, he, he gave me a chance. Um, he, he, uh, saw I was passionate about wanting to, uh, learn how to farm. And, um, he saw that I had a real heart for conservation work and, uh, um, uh, and I cared a lot about restoring prairie. And, uh, so he hired me on to Hoxie native seeds where we grow, um, 50 different species of native prairie plants, um, from grasses and sedges all the way to, you know, many of the different flowers that, um, uh, folks would be familiar with that are found in, in, uh, prairies. And, uh, so now my, my job title there is production manager. So I'm out in the fields, uh, when it's warm enough and not snowy and when it is warm or when it isn't warm enough and when it is snowy, um, I'm either in the office working on the podcast, with my coworker, Nicholas, um, or I'm, uh, in the shop cleaning seed. And, uh, so, uh, I, I love my job. I love, that I get to work on old farm equipment and, and I operate it. And, um, I work, I love that. I like, there's a ton of, like, it's a very physical job, you know, right. uh, uh, there's, there's, you know, in the summers, you know, most of my days are right around 20,000 steps. I don't get as many in the shop when I'm cleaning seed, unfortunately, right. but <laughs> in the winter, so I got to be careful in the winter that I don't, you know, put on the, uh, extra, extra layer, uh, during a blubber during the winter. But, um, uh, you know, I, I just love all those aspects of it. And then of course I'm outside almost all the time and, uh, I'm just wired for that. And so really it's been, you know, moving here has been a dream come true being on the family farm. that cared so much about my whole life and, uh, getting to do farm work and in a way that I'm helping, you know, our wild places all around the Midwest and, and, uh, helping, uh, bring back acres of habitat for the critters that we care about and the places that we care about. It's, uh, it provides a lot of, uh, fulfillment. Absolutely, man. That's phenomenal. I mean, one, I mean, just props to you for being able to put it all together there. I mean, it, it, it being able to achieve the crossroads of, you know, stuff that you care about and also being able to you know, have it be your livelihood at the same time is, I mean, I think that's, very that's the American dream right there, man. That's, I mean, that's right. I'm very fortunate. We were talking yeah. about, um, 
you know, how, how you guys go about harvesting all the different types of seeds, whether it be for grasses or flowers or, or what have you with some of that older farm equipment. I got to thinking how many, I guess, I'm not sure what the proper unit to, of measurement would be. Are you guys measuring seeds in, in bushels or do you guys do it we do, in pounds? We do pounds. Okay. Pounds, yeah. How many pounds of seed are you doing every year? That's a really good question. So it varies a lot from year to year. And I got to be careful here. I don't give away any, uh, any, uh, trade, trade <laughs> information for our competitors, competitors, but you know, um, I'll give you some ballparks, okay. uh, for, for, uh, flower species. Um, and of course this again, depends on what the market dictates for, you know, what's a good amount of a certain species to grow, how many, you know, how many customers essentially are there, uh, that are going to want a certain species, right? So you could have like a really tough, um, hard to grow flower species that there's a very small but expensive market for. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's some species of flowers out there that literally the seeds will sell for, you know, $1,200, $1,500 a pound. And no uh, kidding. Those those species they're usually because they're very tough to grow and very tough mm -hmm. to to harvest and and clean even, um, you know those are going to be in a small field. Uh, they're going to be in a, you know you might only grow maybe five pounds of those, and then other species that are are just like a foundational flower species in a CRP mix and a common like pollinator mix or something like that. Yeah, uh, you might grow you might grow uh, you know three, four, 500, maybe even, you know, if it was a big enough deal, maybe a thousand pounds of, of a certain flower species, um, that, that you know, you're going to use a lot. Right. It, it just goes well in the mixes. And then, um, most of other things fall, you know, somewhere in the middle and then grasses. Um, the grass market's been interesting because prairie seed production has been around long enough now that there's a lot of, there's a lot of it available. Mm -hmm. And, and so the market is, has kind of been hurt by so much supply and not as much demand. Um, and you know, here's, here's a kind of a separate issue to talk about even within conservation. We also, as like conservation work is, is, has been, you know, remarkable in, in our country over the last 40 to 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think most people through growing up watching animal planet and national geographic and Kratz creatures and, and whatever else, you know, Zabumafu and we're little kids, you know, oh, yeah. on public television, you know, all those shows that we've all been, you know, in a way indoctrinated with, um, we've, there, there's been a lot of good to come from that. We, I'd say the average American has much more of a conservation ethic as uh, Aldo Leopold would, would term it mm -hmm. uh, today than what they had in the 1950s, right? But <clears throat> a thing that we can't really get away from within that, that we need to be, that we need to be concerned with is our, is the bias of the human eye, right? The bias of our preferences and when you tell somebody, hey, I grow prairie grasses, I grow flowers, I grow sedges, 
first of all, nine out of 10 people have no idea what a sedge is, so they don't really care. Um, grass? Oh, I got grass everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, cool. I guess maybe I can pheasant hunt it. But did you say flowers? You know, like it's right. it's like what's the uh what's the thing that we're all super interested in? Well, it's gonna be the flowers. And that's good because the flowers are truthfully the most uh fragile part of a prairie in most cases. However, you know, people get concerned about, well, if I have some big blue stem in my pollinator plot, then that big blue stem after you know, 15 years is just going to take over that pollinator plot. It's going to push mm-hmm. all the flowers away and, and take all the resources from the flowers. Right. And so people kind of start like, like that's part of the market too. You know, there's not as much demand for some of those species because, um, you know, they're not, they're not as uh, desirable, you know, and right. uh, there's been, this has been documented in other ways too. Like there, I remember reading an article a few years ago, about the danger, the plight of of uh, endangered species that are ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wants to save a dolphin. Nobody wants to s- save a uh, you know a brook lamprey. Not that they're endangered, but <laughs> but you get the point. You know, it's like right. the one looks like a monster, and the other one is this beautiful, cuddly little thing. Yeah, you know, let's save the dolphins. You know, it's it's a lot easier to uh, to do that and there are cases of species that aren't very desirable um, that are not doing well, but they just, they don't ever get the, uh, the uh, press that Mm -hmm. these other more desirable species do. So, you know, that's kind of, I guess my little rabbit trail sermonette in there on, we got to still, you know, look at the grass species as an important part of it. And, but that being said, um, we still, they still do, form, even though their price has gone down quite a bit over the past few decades, um, we still, you know, they still form the foundation of a CRP mix. Um, and there are even like, uh, you know, if you have a landowner who is doing, who is enrolling in CRP out of necessity instead of out of necessity plus, um, they're, they're, they have a little conservationist inside of them. Um, they're going to want to, the cheapest mix, right? Well, the cheapest mix is going to be mostly grass and few flowers. Right. And so um, you still sell a lot of grasses and we grow, you know, usually most species, you're going to be well over a thousand pounds, you know, sure. on, and, and uh, some species you could have many thousands of pounds and the biggest producers, they're going to grow tens of thousands of pounds of grasses. Right. And so um, that kind of puts it all into perspective though, like the whole, the whole picture of how seeds are, are grown and why they're grown and the quantities that they're grown in. I love it. That's awesome. You know, you, you said several things there that struck a nerve there, but one of them, um, you mentioned, you know, kind of growing up with this, this, you know, conservation ethic, you know, kind of being pushed to us as kids. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think for, for a long time, it was, I mean, not even that long ago it was what, like 10, 15 years ago or so. Everything was save the rainforest, save the trees, plant mm-hmm. a tree, do all this stuff. It's great for the environment. You know, they they clean our air, all that stuff. I was really fortunate um, to have one of my best friends um, all through college and roommate go into doing prairie restoration um, oh, nice. in various states. And so I, I learned secondhand um, 
I'm by no means an expert, but I learned secondhand through him a heck of a lot more than most folks do about, uh, um, you know, prairies. And one of the things that jumps out to me is, or that, that he always mentioned was that from a, a carbon sequestering standpoint, prairies yeah. and grasses are doing a heck of a lot more legwork than those trees are. They yeah. just don't get the same love because you don't see this, you know, you don't look out across the, I mean, you look out across the landscape and you're going to, you're going to notice the, you know, 40 foot oak tree out there. Right. More so than all the grass between you and that tree, right? All the grass just kind of blends in. Yeah. From, from the standpoint of, you know, kind of supply and demand, like you mentioned there in terms of, you know, people enjoying flowers more so than grasses and all that mm-hmm. is, I'm just curious from a carbon sequestering standpoint and really just a a land health standpoint obviously you need a balance of the two is one better or worse than the other in terms of sequestering carbon or you know improving soil health where should folks and i as i'm saying this i'm i'm i hear the uh you know that it's going to be one of those classic it depends questions but um <laughs> From that standpoint, in general, like, is there is there much difference between grasses or flowers in terms of, you know, improving habitat and what folks should really look to have on their property? Oh, that is a really good question. And, um, yeah, the the average, uh, I used to be a biology teacher, so the, the biologist in me says that I have to say it depends, but I hate it when, <laughs> when biologists always say that. Everyone just wants to, yeah, but get to the point. Come on. So, so uh, I'm going to try and get to the point for you. The way I look at it is the grasses form the, the, they're like the, the studs of the house, right? They're like sure. the walls and the, and the roof. They're the structure. They're the, they are in a truest sense, the habitat of our ground nesters mostly, but also small mammals and, and, uh, you know, when they're not, you know, uh, essentially dormant or hibernating, uh, even reptiles. And, mm-hmm. and then of course, uh, uh, when the hatch happens and, and, uh, migration routes continue and so forth, lots of, of, uh, insects. And then of course, birds, you know, they're going to use the grasses as more so as the, the housing element, safety and protection from, from the elements and from, predation the flowers in general now for insects obviously a little bit different but in general i look at the flowers as the food that's Mm -hmm. the um that's the food supply within the habitat and um somebody who you know when 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 somebody enrolls into a crp program and they enroll with um, maybe they they're struggling to get enough points to get their ground approved for a CRP uh, uh, plan. They'll say, you know what? How about this? How about I put in the highest qualities? How about I put in a CP forty two or a CP thirty three with all these uh, these nice pollinator species in there? Mm-hmm. Um, we can view that food as just being there for the bees and the butterflies, sure, moths, right? But um, you know, we're trained now, you and I are both avid hunters. We're trained now to view the landscape as, oh, if you, I mean, there's a cornfield over there. 
Is there any, uh, do I see any trees around there? Do I see any cedars, any, uh, any grass, you know, thick mm-hmm. grass? Okay. Now there's going to be wildlife there because there's corn there. Yeah. But first of all, corn is not a real thing. Um, we still don't really fully understand how corn came to be. If you read the book 1491, there's some really interesting uh, history there on, on that. We know that Teosinte uh, is, is part of that, which is a grass from South America. But corn is not native to North America, and it's technically a, a hybridized um, plant that's really pretty much man-made through, through you know, centuries of, of breeding. But um, so my point is these animals that all lived here long before corn was here, they were living off of the native plants that were here, and those those native food sources of course there's a lot of those found in a forest habitat and think of like a white-tailed deer a true edge species yes they used the prairie but they also used you know they liked oak savannas and they liked um riparian bottomland area you know just like they do today so they're eating acorns and they're eating other things that are naturally you know uh, think of all the green foliage that they eat through the summer spring and summer early fall months you know so there's those things, but beyond that, the prairie provided a lot of it too, and the different flowers. Um, many of the uh, uh, orb species in a prairie are in the legume family, which is the same as a soybean family, mm-hmm. right? So um, we use a common legume in in farming practices we have here in North America since settlement alfalfa and uh, clover right there's those things have been used a lot those are not native red clover is not native sorry to burst some bubbles out there and of course alfalfa isn't but um purple prairie clover is and white prairie clover and um uh, uh the tick trefoils are and round-headed bush clover and and um, let's see what else is, is in there. Uh, Illinois bundle flower or, or uh, prairie mimosa. That's a um, partridge pea. Those are, all, those are all legume species that deer can, can forage on. And, and, and not just deer, but um, our native ground nesters like turkeys and, mm-hmm. and a quail. And at one time, prairie chickens. Of course, now we have the newcomer, the pheasant that, that lives on those things now. Um, but... But uh, that's really how you can look at it. The grasses form the the structure that they're going to live in um, with, of course, you know, trees fitting in where they should uh, for some of those species. You know, turkeys and, and deer are going to like kind of that edge, that edge area, whereas, um, you know, uh, bison and, and uh, prairie chickens and, and uh, um you know, some of the others, elk, they were going to be more comfortable out in the open grasslands. And uh, elk elk can be, you know, they kind of like edge too a little bit, but they were, I think they were historically a little bit more content to be out in the, the wide open than, than deer and turkeys were. But point being, food is there, cover is there when you have a good diverse stand. And that's, that's really what matters. Then from a carbon sequestration standpoint, um, grasses are definitely going to be the, the, they're going to take the cake on that. They just got a higher stem count. Um, and I think a lot of times people forget that 
that when things are dead, they're still like at least until they're, you know, completely decayed, they're still storing carbon, right? right. They're giving it off all the time as they're being consumed by decomposers. But uh, so even every year, the dead stems on the plant still hold a lot of carbon in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, but even more importantly for grasses, are there incredible root systems? And, um, you know, that's that's something where we do a, a, a bit of a marketing fudge as prairie reconstructionists where we talk about, yeah, you just need some big blue stem out there. That baby's got 13 foot root system. And yes, it can. It absolutely can. But the problem is we have almost no topsoil left. I know it's another bubble burster for for people <laughs> down here in Iowa. We have all the topsoil uh, we used to. Uh, most of it's gone. Uh, sorry. Unfortunately, it's most of it's gone. Um, down in the lowlands, we still have a lot uh, where it's all washed off the hillside that's, lay, mm-hmm. that's laying bare all across the state right now. Um, and you walk around and, you know, you spend enough time walking around in, in fields, um, you know, whether it's working like I do or, or I do a ton of shed hunting and I do a, a lot of, a, a ton of hunting as well. And so I, I'm on a lot of different farms and you can see most places that, you know, are all high points are all subsoil. And that's why we have to haul in synthetic fertilizers every year to try and uh, recreate uh, really a poor substitute for, but a workable substitute of, of topsoil. And so um, those root systems, you know, they can grow in what they can grow in and they can grow through that subsoil to some extent, but, but um, you know, to have the to have to have it like it once was, you know, true remnant prairies, uh, virgin prairies that would have been here across the Midwest. That that's where those root systems really would have been super deep, and they would have had they would have had so much carbon holding power, mm-hmm. and um, uh, they still do. So don't get me wrong, you know, like it's better, it's far better than than the alternative to not have prairie somewhere when it comes to carbon sequestration. Um, uh, but the grasses definitely, uh, are there, but, uh, you know, there's some flowers that hold their own too. another legume species. One of my absolute favorite, maybe my favorite form is a lead plant, um, which there is a beautiful, uh, uh, remnant prairie that, um, I'll tell you about for you to go visit after, uh, we're, uh, we're done here on the, on the call. That's yeah. not too too far from your neck of the woods, but it has a ton of ancient lead plant growing in there and lead plant will send down a really deep tap root. Um, compass plant is another one. Uh, I'm forgetting a, a common one in there. Um, kind of a smaller one, but, but, and then also another thing to consider too, is a lot of the forbs are, are biennial instead of, uh, um, or biennial instead of uh, uh, perennial plants. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they aren't going to have that deep root system like like the perennials are. But but um, overall, grass is definitely the winner there on, on uh, carbon holding power. Gotcha. You mentioned the topsoil thing there and how a lot of it's, you know, either run off or blown off or, you know, depending on the year yep. would take your pick. And, and, ha- and has been for, and has been for a long time. This isn't just like, Oh yeah. You know, 2021, we finally, we finally crossed the threshold where all of our right. topsoils, so it's been gone for decades. Okay. Gotcha. So 
Can you expand upon that just a little bit about what exactly the, the topsoil consists of? And I guess what's lacking, you mentioned that we throw fertilizer on top of there, um, you know, to sort of create a synthetic substitute. Is the topsoil traditionally just a, a more workable, like more loosely packed soil that's easier yeah. to work with and, you know, holds more nutrients or what exactly are we, are we yeah, lacking that's a, that's now? A, that's a really good way to describe it. And I am not a scientist and um, I've actually thought about I should like go take some classes on like soil science. Cause that's, you know, I've had a bajillion science classes in my, uh, in my life, getting my uh, degrees in science ed and mm -hmm. just a general science degree. But, but one of the things I've never, I've never had like a direct class on is soil science. So I, I will preface my description here in that way. I'm speaking more as a farmer than as a, uh, soil scientists now, but you're, you're largely correct there in saying that, yeah, it's the, the structure of the medium, right? You know, that those nice loose soils that have good aeration through there, that's easy for roots to grow through and penetrate and expand out and, and, um, uh, you know, have a healthy maximized root system growing in. So that's, that's number one. And that came from, uh, glacial activity that was going okay. on. And, and, um, uh, one of the, one of the things, uh, I like to pick on, uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota for is I like to say, Hey, thanks for all the top topsoil because, uh, <laughs> as those glaciers stretch down in a way, not completely like this, but similar, it sort of worked like a giant snow plow, you know, as they're carving down and much of Iowa, um, in the most recent glaciation was not glaciated. Um, there was the Des Moines lobe, which we call it that because that's basically um, down kind of on the south end of Des Moines, I believe, is is the terminus of, so the, the farthest that last glaciation event reached. However, what people, I think myself included, struggle to um, grasp about those glaciers is just how big they were. I mean, you know, you're talking mile plus thick ice. Yeah, I mean, right. you can't even can't even comprehend that. You know, like drive around the the bluffs of the Driftless area, which was not glaciated yeah. in the last glacier event, which is why we call it that. Um, but those are not five thousand two hundred eighty feet above the ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. the, we're talking a mile thick of ice in places now down at the terminal end there by Des Moines, I doubt it was that tall, but, but in its thickest points. So it's going to be at least many hundreds of feet thick and just how much, I mean, think of what happens. Think of the flooding on the Mississippi river back in 2019. We had a really snowy winter in 2019. Mm -hmm. I remember cause I had a flat roof uh, and I had to shovel <laughs> my roof a couple times that winter, but um, we had all that snow pack and then it all melted very quickly um, uh, and, uh, down in, I was living in the quad cities in Davenport at that time. And the flooding on the Mississippi river in Davenport, at least was even, I believe it surpassed what even happened on the Mississippi river during the great flood of 1993. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, that just illustrated now of course we have locks and dams the river's been channelized it's not what it once was so that affects how flooding happens but really technically that makes flooding you know theoretically easier to control 
um, by having all those things. Uh, but that gives you an idea of when you just have a lot of snow everywhere that's melting, how much flooding happens, all that runoff. And so now imagine this glacier, which is, is just, you know, thousands of years of accumulated snow, all of that melting, the amount of runoff that happened in this state, um, deposited just like after a flood and you go and look at the, look at the, you know, streets after Mm -hmm. a flood, you know, all that sediment that's just dropped behind. That's essentially what happened around the state. And so we got all, all this really fine, just wonderful soil matrix, uh, called glacial till that settled throughout most of the state or much of the state, maybe is even a better word yet. And, uh, that really set the, the, the playing field for when, um, these prairie species start working their way West. Um, and some may have already been here pre from, you know, previous unglaciated times perhaps, but it really set the, the, it was like having the whole surface covered in miracle grow, right. Mm -hmm. For these species to start growing and, and establishing themselves and holding that soil here, there was still erosion going on, tons of erosion, going on during the virgin prairie years, no doubt about it, but nothing compared to what it is today. Um, sure. Not even, not even remotely close. Um, and so, uh, the, the other part of that was the, the soil was, was alive. Um, there was all these microbial communities, eco really like micro ecosystems mm-hmm. that were going on in the soil allowing for the cycling of matter uh, and energy to happen in a really efficient means and in a, in a way that benefited the rest of the ecosystem and uh, provided those, not just the main nutrients that we think of when, when we're fertilizing a field, the main one that we're considering is nitrogen, but there's also all these other, and farmers, the average farmer isn't dumb. He knows that he needs you know, it's best to do soil testing and find out, okay, yeah, I'm okay on nitrogen. I need, maybe I need some potassium, maybe I need some magnesium on and on. Right. And, and so we, we can, you know, we can synthetically add those things, but it's very inefficient, requires a ton of fossil fuels, right. To ship that, that stuff around the world, to manufacture it, to apply it. Um, whereas, going on in the soil was a better quality um, fertilizing process, I guess you could say. And uh, it, it was far great things from that. And I think it's important we acknowledge that. Um, uh, we've gotten um, a food supply that is far greater than any other point in known human history, right? We have, we have, you know, think about it. We burn food to power our vehicles. Um, that's what ethanol is. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've grown so much of this food product. We're going to actually start, we're gonna actually start uh, using it as a fuel source. Or you might remember, um, I don't know, 15 years ago when people started getting those corn burners for their house to heat their house, they'd use like yeah. a corn, pe- corn pellets. Yeah. You don't really see much of that anymore, but, Mm-mm. um, you know, like my dad used to say, I, th- I always thought this was funny. He's like, whenever you start burning food uh, to like heat your house, 
that might signify the symptom of something else going on (laughs) 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 when we're just burning food. Um, So, so I mean like our food, that being said, I just read the other day, um, one third of the world's food is thrown away. So we have the supply, but our supply chain is still very jacked up in the sense that there's people around the world that still starve. And yet we're throwing away 33% of the food that is produced, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes, we're able to produce a lot of food, but it came with a major trade-off. Uh, and that trade-off is if we're going to remove all of this prairie, we're going to lose that micro ecosystem of a healthy soil column um, that's that's uh, releasing all these different nutrients and minerals uh, that are coming from, well, the minerals are going to be coming from the plants that are growing on the, the soil as their tissue breaks down and they deposit those minerals in the soil and other organisms as well. But especially the, the um, you know, the, just like the, the elemental nutrients that we need for healthy plants. And um, uh, because of the common ag practice, that always remains disturbed, not near as bad as it once did. The worst thing we ever did to the soil was was run a, a moldboard plow through it and mm-hmm. and really upturn it and and uh, we thankfully we've caught on with and and most farmers have fully adopted no-till ag practices, but there's yeah. still some even within a true no-till field, there's still some tillage that happens. Um, it's just it's, it's part of it, you know. Anytime you're right. gonna like disc to break up some compaction or, or, um, you know, maybe you're going to even applying in hydrus, you know, you're running a knife through the ground that turns the soil a little bit that disturbs those, those microbial communities. And then even in the case of, um, uh, in hydrus applications, it's going to, uh, that, you know, like we've all heard the horror stories of, you know, an anhydrous hose breaking, and you know uh really freezer burning i guess for lack of a better term you know the the farmer the applicator um while it's doing that to those the bacteria in that soil as well like it's it's free you know freezing it right killing it and so we don't have near the microbial activity in our soil anymore as as well and um so as a result you know uh we've we have a system that works like we're able to use synthetic fertilizers we have hybrids that we've engineered to grow well with those fertilizers and uh we've come up with uh a way of processing those crops into calories that can be consumed by humans and so we have a system that works and it's it's added great wealth to our communities in a way, financially speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, opened up people to not be so busy, uh, you know, driving a horse team through their field on a field cultivator. So now they can go off to med school and become a doctor and, and, uh, do incredible things. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's all bad, but, because we became so imbalanced with it, um, now we have the problems of, you know, poor soil quality in a place that was 
that still is known for its great soil, but it's becoming compar- mm-hmm. a comparatively speaking uh, thing. And um, it's certainly not what it once was. And, right. and um, you know, if Iowa lost all of its soil, like if all of a sudden, if you turned Iowa soil into Arizona soil, what would Iowa be? You know, wouldn't be what it is now. That's for sure. All the things right. that Iowa is known for now wouldn't even, wouldn't even uh, be a part of the equation, you know? Right. So it's uh, our most valuable resource in a way. And um, we don't have much of it left. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game-changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com and share your hunt with Tacticam. That's fascinating, man. Yeah, it's it's uh it's an it's a interesting story, but it's it's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, gonna, no, it's it, it's very I'm apologize sad. to your I'm gonna apologize to your listeners a little bit here. My internet I think is kind of lagging right now, so I hope uh, the video isn't getting all jacked up. I live out on the farm and so uh, my internet's not the best. No, you're good, man. It might be uh an issue on my end as well. Um you know, you mentioned a couple of things there. I'm going to try and tie them back together here. You mentioned that through Hoxie with your, with your farming um, of, you know, kind of less conventional crops and that there being, you know, grasses and flowers and, you know, prairie seeds rather than, you know, traditional crops that we're seeing, you still have to play the game of supply and demand. And I think yep. that that's something that's often, I mean, I, I think a lot of people just, they miss the whole aspect of farming being the one industry. There might be others, but you know, one of the predominant industries in the U S where the farmers who are actually producing the good don't get to set their own price. Right. right? It is dictated by the market. I think that's something that so many people just miss and they, Mm -hmm they do kind of get these assumptions about farmers and that they, oh, well, you know, it depends where you're at, but, you know, around, and we were talking to Doug Dern about this and, you know, kind of the the dissolving small dairy farms that we see in Wisconsin. Um, And you and I were talking before we started recording um, about how just, you know, you've got these generational farms who they're reaching a point now where they're just, they're kind of starting to dry up and the, the, small farms that used to pepper the landscape and everything. Um, they're, they're just not what they once were. And you, you drive through, you know, a rural area and yeah, you might see a farm that's struggling that has, you know, a few broke down implements sitting in the front yard or, 
you know, off the side of the road that haven't been touched and are just rusting away. And you kind of raise an eyebrow, well, you know, I don't know what's going on there. And I, you, you mentioned before we started that farming, I'm going to word it a little differently here, but farming essentially kind of has a similar to hunting. It's got a bit of a PR issue, right? Mm-hmm. And that people perceive farmers as, you know, like to quote, <laughs> to quote you, you know, some kid who wakes up at, you know, 3 a.m. to milk cows by hand and is, you know, overalls and barely makes the bus and, you know, goes to school smelling like manure and, you know, isn't all that bright. But, you know, at in this day and age, you know, there there really aren't many dumb farmers. You can't be a, no. a successful farmer and be dumb because you have to be I mean, shoot, you, you got to know a little bit about horticulture. You got to know a little bit about vet science. You got to know about, you know, soil health, watching the weather. You, I mean, you got to mechanics, you, you name it. What do you think is is going to be crucial for kind of turning around that perception of the rural American farmer? in the u.s well and and to be clear you know the the old farmers if anything they were you know even as 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 uh much as today's farmers know and understand the old timers you know they they knew even more because Mm -hmm. they didn't have near the the modifications and accommodations to deal with the different things that that you mentioned and and they wrote they raised not only crops, but a lot of different species of, of those crops and a lot of different species of, uh, and, and breeds of livestock. And so, uh, there's a lot of this perception that farming still exists in like the Norman Rockwell era, you know, where like you, like you were describing, you know, the, the, like the farm kids are all, you know, there, first of all, there's like eight of them living in the farmhouse and they're all barefoot and in overalls that, that are, uh, they've outgrown and, um, they're up, you know, at 3am out milking cows and collecting eggs. And you even see this stuff circulated on, on, uh, um, on Facebook by different groups and you read all the comments and people are, you know, it's just this bleeding heart. Oh, you know, bless the American farmer. And, and I'm, this is so true. And it's like, this stuff hasn't been true since the 1960s, at mm. least. And farming has totally changed. And what they're describing in that Norman Rockwell type picture, and uh, they're describing a real thing that did exist when farmers had control over their operation when they had um kind of like what you're referencing with the price game that goes on with global markets now and with uh these these subsidized um crop prices that that um the federal government in a way dictates and um farmers have have increasingly lost more and more control over where they live um you know there was the whole a, a big marker when you talk to old time you know old timers who were farming uh, back 
in the farm crisis era. Um, Earl Butts was a secretary of agriculture under Richard Nixon. And uh, he had the infamous phrase, get big or, or get out. And really what he was, what he was proclaiming at that point was farming is fundamentally changing. You're no longer growing crops that you're going to feed to your livestock and uh, maybe sell a little bit of the extra to, you know, to the local market for other people's livestock or, or, you know, whatever. Um, Maybe some even was going to processing plants at that time. I would imagine some was um, to, uh, now we're going to be trading this stuff on a global scale. All of it's going to be cash crop. Yes, some of you are still going to have livestock and you'll probably still raise uh, crops for your livestock. And that still goes on today to some extent, of course. You know, we still, it's not like there's less pigs in Iowa than there was in 19, you know, 57. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anything, there's more. Um, Just but, a little more concentrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot more concentrated. Um, and and uh, who owns those pigs now? It's, well, it's, it's usually some huge pork producer company. You know, those are Tyson's pigs or something uh, more along those lines. And who owns the facility and who owns, you know, so all this, that's just on the livestock side, which I don't understand as well as I do the, the cropping side. But um, uh Farmer, even with right to repair uh, going on in the news where, where um, you know, uh, uh, I guess we, they're more so big, big farming corporations now than I guess you would say like a true farmer. I had a friend kind of point out to me how I had it screwed up with how the flow of farm equipment sales goes and, and the large farming operations where it's not so much like one farmer owns all this necessarily, like it's a kind of a conglomerate thing. Um, they get the brand new stuff and the brand new stuff um, coming off the line at the farm equipment manufacturers now has so much tech from a, um, like, like a computer software standpoint that, uh, that the owners aren't allowed to, to work mechanically on their own equipment. They have to, or it voids a warranty. Um, they have to, or the terms of their lease, they have to have a really? dealer come out and, and uh, a, you know, a dealership mechanic come out and service it. Well, of course that comes with a huge price tag, you know, for simple fixes. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was just reading about one last week where, a farmer, uh, I think it was his tractor, something was goofed up with his tractor. And he had to pay the dealership $800 to send a guy an hour and a half each way to come and uh, uh, plug in a wire that came loose uh, behind the steering column or something like that. He wasn't even allowed to investigate it to see that it was so simple. He had to be shut down for that long, you know, on, or at least couldn't use that piece of equipment until it got fixed, you know. And then he has an $800 bill to go with it. And, and it's a, it's something that we're still working out as a, as a society right now. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Colorado has, um, uh, has created right to repair laws that allow 
the owners of the equipment to work on their own equipment and other states are probably going to follow suit. But it, it's just a symptom of a larger problem, which is control has been taken away from that model that we right. all think farming still is where, yeah, you, you did have to go get eggs every morning before school because that's how you had eggs. You didn't go to the grocery store for that. Like you, it was, it was provided on your own farm and yeah, you had to go milk the cow cause you know, you want to have milk with your, uh, cereal that morning. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, uh, you had to go and slaughter a chicken after school because we're having chicken for supper and you had, you know, you go down, down the line, the, before that we went to an all cash model for farming. Um, yes, farmers didn't have as much cash in their, in their pocket maybe, but they also didn't have to spend as much because, you know, there was much more of a subsiding, you know, a, a subsistence way of living on, on their, their own small farm. And so, um, then things were more of a, a supply and demand when it came to commodity prices, you know, instead of, instead of all these other factors that are getting a piece of the pie and controlling prices and farmers never end up any richer than they were before. And they're the ones that have to take the huge risk in buying a giant expensive piece of equipment all the time or, are going and and buying more land to increase the size of their operation to try and get a return on the cost of their inputs and uh um in the end rarely do they end up you know any in any way significantly better off than than uh where they started so yeah you're right it's a it's a twisted system right now and uh you know it probably annoys people to hear me talk about it that way. I'd be happy to talk about it with you. And, and I'm sure I got some things wrong. Um, in my perception, uh, nobody's got the perfect outlook on anything, but, um, the point there is that it's, it's a system that's taken control away from the land and the land has suffered, you know, go back to our topsoil conversation in our mutual friend, Doug Duran likes to say nothing parties like a rental and how much, <laughs> farmland is, uh, is leased, you know, it's rented. Right. And, uh, it, when, when, when you don't own the land, it is, it is far more likely that you do not care what's going to be happening on that land when you're done with it. Right. Um, you know, and another thing that Doug is known for saying is it's not ours, it's just our turn. And, uh, that doesn't come up as much in a leased, uh, acre system. And, uh, um, you know, it leads to a lot of environment, you know, a lot of <clears throat> environmental problems, a lot of problems that affect, um, soil quality, air quality, water quality, but also, uh, the quality of habitat, which I think is often forgotten. Um, even on my own family farm, uh, it's interesting. You used to, in the, you know, up through the nineties, they would have these outfits that would come through on airplanes and helicopters and take pictures of farms. And then they would send a sales rep to your door, knock on your door, be like, Hey, look at this beautiful picture. We took of your farm for 150 bucks. We'll give you this picture, this aerial mm-hmm. picture. And so you go around pretty much every, 
every old farm that's still in the family, um, uh, you know, across the Midwest, and you'll see somewhere on the wall somewhere there's one of those pictures or two of those yeah. pictures. And but they're, <clears throat> I'm glad they did that because when you look at it, you can see how much change has happened, and mm-hmm. I would say <clears throat> the very vast majority of the time, when you look at the amount of available habitat. Um, that was there in those older pictures, uh, it is less now. And, um, that's certainly true on my family's farm. Uh, right. And it's been, it's been in a, you know, it's, it's a farm that's, that's, um, you know, in a least part of the least system, but I'm so thankful that it's still in our family because for most folks, you know, how do you know you're from the Midwest? You talk about the farmland that your family used to own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sadly, man, dude, as you said that with the the aerial photos of the, of the farm, I could picture, I think three different copies from over the years over at my grandparents' yep. farm. Um, yeah, really study in, it. Yeah. Really study it. Look, it's at the, mind look blowing. At the differences. Right. And some things have gotten better, you know, like I said, you know, the worst thing to ever happen to our soil was the mobile board plow. Uh, that's not done anymore, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so some things have gotten better, you know, uh, but, but across the board, habitat's always shrinking. Right. Right. Well, I think it's the, the one that sticks out to me always, you know, the habitat's one thing, but it's also, it's, it's cool watching the, you know, you're successful enough to, or fortunate enough to, to have the success, you know, through farming, despite all of the, all of the setbacks, um, you know when you can look at those aerial photos over the year, like, Oh yeah, that was the year that they built that big shed or we did that addition or whatever. And the farm grew just a little bit. We were able to, you know, there's the combine parked out there. Uh, I remember when they bought that, like I, I still remember when I was shoot, I I had to be less than five or something when my grandpa finally bought his uh, new combine um, from the the implement dealer down the road. And we got to go for a ride in that. And it was just like, yeah, that was the coolest awesome. thing. And yeah, shortly after that, the, the aerial photos that were there, and, you know, we're lucky to have, you know, multiple generations of those uh, over at their place, which is just pretty cool to watch. But man, I had no idea that there was, you know, the, the these restrictions on being able to work on your own equipment going into effect. Like that, that is, I mean, just the word that comes to mind is just deplorable. Cause it's like, how are you, you're, you're, it's like you're running your own business and somebody has to tell you, well, I mean. Yeah. Well, and imagine what it means, you know, if it's a simple fix like that and during harvest time and again, that's that's, that's where the farmer uh, does have the most risk because Mm -hmm. he, to get to that size has had to crop you know a a crazy amount of acres and if he doesn't have equipment enough equipment to uh you know harvest those acres in time Mm -hmm. um then you know that you're talking his livelihood is is hurt by that now of course another thing built in there too a very big thing in the farm bill is crop insurance and um that that greatly diminishes risk in a lot of ways that it shouldn't. 
that has hurt habitat acres as well. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole nother that's that's a whole nother can of worms, and that <laughs> and those those are fighting words there. And I don't want to I don't want to get you too much uh, hate mail um, on on your episode here. But it's a it's a it's a complicated thing. I would encourage people, um, your, yourself included, Pierce, to read a couple books mm-hmm. um, if you haven't yet. Uh, one is called Farming for the Long Haul. And uh, it's a, it's a great book. Um, uh, my friend Luke Fritch, who is uh, in the same, a, a very similar situation as myself. Um, uh, he uh, lives on his family's farm. He does help with his family. His dad still farms there, but he, he helps with that. But he's watched as these things have eroded through time. Right. And uh, um, he's the one who gave me that book. And then another great book um, is uh, Tending Iowa's Land uh, by Connie Butel. And uh, uh, those books really explain a lot of the stuff that goes unseen. And then uh, White Oak Pastures is a, is a uh, present day, uh, I guess you'd say more of a traditional uh, style farm that operates down in Georgia and they've done a lot of podcasts and, and, uh, all sorts, they've written a book and there's all sorts of stuff there where they talk about everything that we just, we just mentioned that, you know, helps bring awareness. That's the importance of not keeping, hanging on to that false perception of what farming is, is it allows those that have control to maintain control and grab more control and farmers will continue to lose and landowners will continue to lose and and uh, ultimately the land will continue to lose mm-hmm. and so uh, I think it's you know it's not it's not a pleasant conversation it's not it's not one where you can really feel good about it after you're done but it's an right. important conversation and it's important that we realize what's been going on yeah no, absolutely. And I, man, I appreciate you shedding so much light on this as you have, because it, it's something where, you know, I, I think we can both agree a lot of the people who have those perceptions are folks who haven't exactly uh, gotten their hands dirty on a farm or walked around on one, you know, because in they, a long because time, they, because if ever. Because their family doesn't own one anymore. Right. And, yeah. they, and they haven't taken the time to say, why don't we own a farm anymore? Right. And, and see this whole trickle of events because I bet a lot of them wish they did. Yeah. I bet a lot of them wish they did. Right. And meanwhile, and if they don't, I bet you they have a kid or a grandkid or a niece or nephew who wishes, wishes they still did. Yeah. Meanwhile, they can complain about the, the price of their groceries or the fact that their, their berries are shipped over here from God knows yeah. where. And they're, you know, yeah, they're developing whatever various, you know, food intolerances, uh, you know, because their stuff's covered in herbicide and insecticides and I mean, totally dependent on it, on it being, being provided by means other than themselves. Right. You know, it's a loss, a loss of control. Yeah. Yeah. It's disheartening. Really. Even on the things that, even on the things that we put into our bodies. Right. And one Mm -hmm. of the most classic phrases of all time, you are what you eat. Right. Yeah. And and there's, I mean, it's overly simplified and I'm telling you that as a biology teacher, but there's, there's some, some definite truth to that, that, uh, saying. So, oh, absolutely. 
but we shouldn't we shouldn't be comfortable with losing all the control over it mm-hmm. definitely well man we've been talking about farming and uh crops and and i mean prairies you know i mean this is <laughs> i have i have absolutely loved this but man we haven't talked once well very briefly we haven't talked about hunting yet yeah man let's talk hunting absolutely so yeah man you uh you happen to host um a couple of podcasts as you mentioned yeah uh one of them being centered around uh being a first gen hunter yeah what's the story there man yeah so you know part of that deal that i was referencing earlier with growing up around farming and wanting to be a part of that somehow and maybe i can blame norman rockwell for this as well uh (laughs) hunting and farming kind of seem to go hand in hand you know that they they it's it's probably just because there's you know again to quote leopold there's a blank space on the map there and uh that's where wildlife are found on the blank spaces of the map and Except for raccoons, raccoons are found everywhere. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the you know like like it was enough to be around it. But my grandfather he he hunted some when he was a kid, and uh, some through his like young adult years. Um, and then I think every once in a great while, when he had a you know just the itch, he would go out and walk for pheasants a little bit here on his on his place and. And there were always pheasants here when he was a kid. Pheasants were brought to Iowa, I think, in the 1905-ish range, I think. Um, so, you know, he was born in 37. And so there were always, you know, pheasants on this farm. Mm-hmm. So he did he did some of that, but but he, you know, he's never, like, identified himself, I don't think, really as, as an avid hunter or anything like that. And... Um, Growing up, my my uh, dad, he was, uh, he, as he says, he was a city slicker. He grew up in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is a pretty large urban area. Um, I think it's around 60,000 people. Uh, but it's right across the, I mean, it's like it, it just flows into Omaha, which, you know, is, a, okay. is definitely a big urban area. It's over a million people now, I believe. Um, so, so he was, you know, he was a through and through city slicker. However... Um, he was in Boy Scouts for much, much of his, uh, childhood. And so he had an interest in nature and he had some, some, you know, not even some, I'd say fairly significant knowledge in like, uh, you know, survival skills and camping and, and like, he just was interested in that. He's a really smart guy. So when he, when he, you know, turns his interest towards something, he figures it out pretty quick. And so he understood that stuff and he, and his dad liked to fish with him. So they would go around to city ponds and stuff like that and, and do some fishing when he was a kid. And so I, I bring all that up to say that he would then incorporate, even though we didn't hunt, didn't own a gun, he would incorporate like outdoor stuff into you know, my growing up years, we would, uh, and then he had also another important thing for him was he had a group of friends that in the summers would go out to, um, Southwest Montana and they would, um, uh, go backpacking 
in uh, a wilderness area there. And so eventually he went along with him after he was out of college and stuff and started doing that every four years or so, two to four years, I think. And it was just kind of their tradition, you know, and they would go trout fishing while they were there and, and, uh, just, you know, have a, have a great time and then, uh, come home, tell us all about it. Well, as a little kid, I'm just sopping this stuff up, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's like magic to me. Right. And, uh, here's an interesting thing for you for, uh, you know, that relates to Wisconsin. My, my maternal grandmother was from Wisconsin. She's from, um, I meant to look up what County just to, to, to give you an idea, but, uh, the, the nearest town is uh, new Lisbon. So kind of in the, um, Mauston, uh, sure. uh Elroy, Oma ish yeah. area, uh, beautiful country there. Right. Uh, uh, real Sandy, uh, area. Um, but her brother's, and her dad, so we're talking about my great uncles and my great grandfather, and then um, her sister's husband and his sons, so my cousins, they all like to hunt. Um, they, uh, you know, Wisconsin was one of the few places in America that, although, you know, one of the older states in the Midwest. Um, just because so much of the habitat, I think, stayed intact in Wisconsin, had wildlife yeah. um, in in huntable quantities when a lot of other places in our country did not, you know. Now, that being said, it still wasn't much. Um, I love asking my grandparents about, uh, you know, what was going on from a wildlife standpoint when they were kids uh, because even though we just romanticized about the good old days of farming, uh, the good old days of farming were happening in the wake of settlement, right? Uh, settlement had taken place in Iowa, basically the oh, 1840s through the, uh, you know, 1870s maybe, and most of the state was probably settled by then. And, there was essentially not only were prairies and, and habitat getting disturbed and, and uprooted and, and lost, but these people didn't have a food chain to keep them alive, keep them fed. So they had to, they had to live off the land. Right. And I think a lot of times we just blame market hunting for the removal of wildlife in the Midwest and, and Western U.S. And yes, that was definitely a major part of it. And in a way, a sinister part of it, right? Like we had to know that we were sinning when we, when we did that as people, you know, like to, mm-hmm. to exploit, you know, you, we've all seen the, the mountain of bison skulls and the, we've heard the numbers on the amount of bison hides that were, right. and just like the wanton waste that went into market hunting. But the other half of that, I think we should acknowledge as well is that uh, people were just trying to survive and they needed food and uh so down here in iowa they ate themselves out of house and home (laughs) when it came to wildlife you know eradication of the prairie chickens Mm -hmm. uh quail were hurt you know knocked back but then they exploded forward with some interesting side stories on uh you know using hedge planting hedgerows and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. it's an interesting story turkeys were gone 
white-tailed deer were gone. Bears are still gone, although there is yeah. one resident bear now in Iowa in the, in the Driftless <laughs> area. But um, uh, bison, gone. Elk, gone. You know, all that stuff was eliminated. And so when my grandpa was a kid in the 30s and 40s and 50s, Deer were back. They were reintroduced, actually, I believe, got some of their deer from Wisconsin. So big thank you to Wisconsin. Um, uh, so you can maybe like. I'd say you guys our, are doing all right all of, with them. For all of our Boone and Crockett entries, maybe you guys should like say, yeah, but it's probably a Wisconsin deer. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That Buffalo County lineage. <laughs> that's right. I bet they got those from Buffalo County. But, uh, but yeah, the, you know, the, the point there being like, Deer were reintroduced. So I think Iowa was without deer for only like a year or two. Uh, and then right away there was some, I know it, I know it, it is. And, and right away there was a deal where some guy um, had some escape from a pen. He was kind of trying to raise them on a farm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he got his from Nebraska or something. The state, asked Wisconsin to give them some, and I think uh, Minnesota as well, and maybe Missouri uh, may have gave gave Iowa some deer as well. There's there's a whole, the stuff is documented. It, it's talked about in a book called A Country So Full of Game, which is an excellent read. Um, <clears throat> uh, really follows the history of, of uh, Iowa's wildlife at, at just pre-settlement through settlement. But um, <clears throat> the... Uh, uh, when it comes to Wisconsin, though, when I asked my grandma, oh, so wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. So my my grandfather, he never saw deer as a kid, like never. You know, mm-hmm. they saw pheasants, never saw turkeys. So it's interesting to ask him, okay, when did you start noticing those things? And for my grandmother, who was in Wisconsin, it was very similar. She's like, yeah, we never saw deer, except for one time she was out mending fence with her dad on their dairy farm. And she she said, we came across a fawn in a fence row. And she said, I was 12 years old and I still remember that little fawn there and that fence row. And it was just the most amazing thing to see that, that fawn. And so to look at where, you know, wildlife has, has come from, but that all connected back to those years of going up to Wisconsin, visiting those family members and knowing that now they all hunted and they were deer hunters. And and so I was excited. I didn't know what it really meant. I knew they got to use guns and I loved guns as a little kid. Um, you know, cap guns and squirt guns and all that stuff, dart guns. Um, uh, but, uh, I didn't know much more about it. Like it was interesting to me because I knew that they did it, but that was really my only exposure. Well then, um, you know, going to school, you start meeting kids who get it, miss out on school because they're going deer hunting with their family on the weekend and oh tell me more about that and you go over to their house and you know what maybe you're staying the night over at a friend's house and they go run into a sporting goods store and they're looking around in the hunting section and you're this is it's like a whole new thing that you've never even you've never even gotten to like really you know get a whiff of mm-hmm. you know as far as and it's just like it, I was hooked I was hooked bad I really wanted to hunt but, um, you know, an important part of that story, too, is when I was like two years old, my dad had a coworker who took a, a kid out hunting who was kind of a down and outer kid. I think his dad had passed away and and, um, you, you know, just he needed he needed some like 
like good male influence in his life. And so the, the guy took him out hunting. And unfortunately, while they were, while they were hunting, I think they were walking single file, uh, which is, you know, Hunter Ed 101, mm-hmm. you know, and the kid tripped oh, and no. uh, blasted him right square between the shoulders and killed him, killed the guy. And uh, um, that hunting accident gave my parents great fear of of hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, they they didn't want us around it, um, and for a reason, you know, like yeah, I get it. You know, that was traumatic for them. Was, they, they saw the aftermath for the poor kid, right? Who, you know, already had a rough go, and now he's got this on his conscience, and 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 uh, it was just like it was a threatening thing. And so I vowed when I was calling my own shots someday, I was going to go hunting. And uh, my wife bought me a Remington 870 for uh, a Christmas present. (laughs) And uh, we ended up buying a uh, bird dog, um, Theo, uh, my uh, Brittany. And uh, I was like, you know what? This dog and I, we're going to learn to hunt together. And, um, so, so that's what we did. We went, came back here to the family farm. I knew my grandpa had some pheasant hunting experience and I was like, Hey grandpa, can you take me pheasant hunting? And so he, he showed me kind of the ropes and, um, of course I didn't get anything the first time I went, but we flushed a few birds and I got a Mm -hmm. shot or two off and, and Theo was out there doing his thing and I was hooked. And I, I also, while I was doing that came across one of those, uh, Buffalo County, uh, genetic line, uh, bucks yeah. that was, uh, out kind of in his pre rut cruising. He was, he was a big one seventies class looking back on him. I have a grainy picture of him on my phone. This was clear back in 2015. He was a, he was a big, uh, double drop. Um, I'm guessing one seventies class and, and I'm talking like legit drop tines like mm-hmm. uh you know like not just stickers handle drop yeah yeah these <laughs> these suckers are like nine ten inch drops and I, and I see that monster and i'm like oh i think i'm gonna go deer hunting this year too <laughs> <laughs> and, and so so you know i got a gun license a gun tag and uh i went deer hunting uh for the first time by myself i had no you know, it was just me mm-hmm. uh, walking out there in the dark, way underprepared for the cold. Um, still with my Remington 870 this time, I just put some rifled slugs in there as the old smooth bore. Yeah. And uh, uh, man, I was, I was, I had no idea what I was doing. I was up, I, I tried sitting in a spot that I thought would be a good spot and I got too cold. And I was hearing all the shooting going on on neighboring farms. And I was like, why am I not seeing anything, you know, and, and all that. And so I, you know, kind of panicked and got up and walked around and then I start flushing pheasants everywhere. So then I take out my rifled slugs and put in some uh, pheasant loads because <laughs> pheasant season's going on at the same time. So I was like, may as well get something. Right. Well, <clears throat> well then of course, as luck would have it, I'm walking back to the house and here comes this train of four does. And, uh, I mean, 35 yards. And so I got pheasant loads in, of course. So Mm -hmm. I'm over here running the action, trying to huck out all these pheasant loads and, uh, get a slug in there in time. And, uh, they, they waited for me and, uh, I got 
I think I got two shots off and uh, I missed the, those rifled slugs were just, you know, spinning off, you know, probably, I probably missed it by a foot or two, you know, mm -hmm. they just, they just, it wasn't a very accurate way to shoot. And, and I, you know, I'm sure I had buck fever like crazy, mm -hmm. but uh, it was a, a, again, just like a, an experience like, man, that was fun. And uh, so the following year, um, a great friend of mine, Kevin Phelps. Uh, Kevin, hope you're listening in, buddy. Still always grateful. Um, he went to my church, and he's like, man, Ken needs help. And uh, um, he, like, took me through the process. We patterned my gun with those rifled slugs to see where the thing was hitting. Mm -hmm. And, of course, sure enough, it's off. I think it was off 11 inches at 50 yards. It was off 11 inches uh, high and to the right, I think. Um, or no, to the left, because that's going to come into play. And uh, so we do that like in September, and then, um, you know, wait until December when I can get a gun tag again. And he takes me out hunting on this farm that he has access to. It's a really good farm. And uh, sure enough, you know, after freezing again for the morning, in comes this, uh, just like last time, train of four does. And uh, they're out at like, I don't know, 80 yards, 70 yards, something like that. It was a bit of a poke with a mm -hmm. smooth bore shotgun, but I was like, I am not missing this time. And I picked one out and I shot, and right as I shot, she started to run. And thank goodness, because she ran right into that slug. And it went, it went, <laughs> it went right through the jugular. I mean, just, just dropped her. And uh, she was, you know, blood out in seconds. And... Mm -hmm. The, that was just like the most unbelievable feeling um, that to, to you know, to, to all of a sudden now have done what I dreamed of since I was a little kid going up to Wisconsin and, right. and hanging out with my cousins and uncles and great grandpa and, and uh, just dreaming of this, you know, and, and uh, Kevin, you know, helped me through the process of field dressing and, dropping it off at the locker and everything. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, uh, you know, I was, I was hooked for sure. And I also, uh, I think it was in November. Uh, yeah, it would have been in November just the month before I got that deer. Um, my, uh, friend Weston went pheasant hunting with me and Theo and I got our first pheasant. And so oh, you know, awesome. it was like, it was, and what was really cool too was since I came from a, family that didn't hunt was the excitement around it from all of them right mm -hmm. like this was this was a novelty to them as well you know like whoa he's actually finding some success here and somebody in our family shot a deer what you know <laughs> and and so that was all just like part of the excitement and and so i just kept at it you know and i i i you know that's really when i started to fly, I guess you would say, you know, is I started hunting more on my own and, and trying new things. I bought a muzzleloader because I wanted to try learning how to hunt with a muzzleloader. And that's really become my favorite way to hunt. I do a lot of bow hunting and there's nothing like bow hunting really, other than I, I would say, uh, October muzzleloader hunting. Sure. Um, I just, I just like the efficacy of a muzzleloader over a bow. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's just, you know, Yes, I'm here for the hunting experience, but I'm also here to fill a tag and 
And that's just easier to do with a muzzle loader than it is with a bow. Right. Um, that being said, it's a lot easier to do with a rifle or a uh, uh, rifled uh, slug gun than yep. with a muzzle loader. And so it does kind of have that nice balance there. Um, and so I've I've uh, harvested quite a few deer, some some really nice bucks here in Iowa with with my muzzleloader, and got my first bow kill this uh, last fall uh, awesome. on a doe. Yep, and that's been a struggle, you know. Uh, bow hunting is I've I've been doing it really. I I went out with with one a borrowed bow in fall of 2019 for one one hunt because I was trying to back clean up on a buck that I had injured in in uh, October muzzle loader. Um, but really committing myself to the discipline, the 2020 season was my first year doing it. I've hunted hard with the bow since, and I've had, unfortunately, you know, several wounded bucks and one doe that I didn't find until November, you know, and I mm-hmm. shot her in early October and, uh, you know, all that messiness that comes, which I think is important to mention, um, hunting is hard. It's very yeah. hard. Um, it's, it's the most challenging discipline I've ever picked up and, uh, bow hunting is the hardest part of it. And, uh, it's important to include that in a first gen hunter message, but it's also why I created first gen hunter was I knew how hard I had worked to start finding this success. And I knew there were other people out there that wanted to do the same thing. And, um, COVID was going on, uh, when I started first gen hunter and when I was teaching, I had no time to do stuff like produce content. Teaching is content production, right? um, you know, or at least learn it. Once I started teaching, I did, I kept running the, or once I started the podcast, I kept running it after school, went back to normal and everything, but I needed that time to, to have the time to get it launched. And um, I knew that since, you know, I, I always had great success as a teacher, you know, I, I, uh, uh, it came naturally to me and I was, you know, I have the gift of gab. And so, uh, I figured I could maybe, you know, put that to, to some use and, and also hunting can be incredibly selfish. Um, mm-hmm. we can pretend that it's all about putting food on the table for our loved ones, which that is absolutely a part of it, but it's also a lot about us, you know, think about, that we like doing it for one. Right. Right. But also, um, think of the amount of alone time you have when you go through a season of bow hunting. It is a lot of time and people have to sacrifice for that. They got to watch your kids. They got to, um, not have you around. They got to maybe not do a fun event, uh, that happens with other people during that time of year because I need to be out in the tree stand if we're going to get a deer this year. You know, I was like, how can I make this less about me? And, and also a financial side of it, you know, it costs a lot of money. How can I maybe offset some of my costs for, for, um, you know, buying gear and tags and, and days off from work and stuff like that. You know, that, that was, that was part of it as well as part of the calculus that went into it too. And so, Um, all of that though, the main thing was how can I use hunting to help other people? And, um, um, you know, I'm a very religious person, um, person of faith. How can I, how can I share my faith story through something I'm very passionate about, which is hunting. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so that's been that's been you know I've, I've gotten to do now three sportsmen's banquets at at uh, churches where I go and I you know tell the first gen hunter story, but also um, talk about my faith, and you know that helps. M- keep me from being the center of my hunting experience, if that makes sense. And I think it's important to try and try and do that. I, obviously not everybody's, you know, the same, but, but we should find ways, whether it's taking other people under our wing and mentoring them, whether it's, you know, shooting an extra deer to give to a family that's, that could use some help, you know, with, with, uh, um, their grocery bill or, uh, whatever it is, a way to give back, to others through that time that we spend on ourselves right. doing the thing that we love, you know? And so first gen hunter really helped with that. And, and it was a chance for me to learn, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I was, what was it? Must've been watching. Um, you know how, it, I think you have an iPhone cause I just texted you and it turned blue. Um, but, uh, you know how like on your iPhone, it'll like pull up photo memories. Like yeah. every day. Yeah. I love looking through those. And I noticed it must have been yesterday I was looking through that. And it showed me a time when I was hunting in the past. And and the stuff I was wearing for the hunt that I was doing, I was like, Oh brother, you did not understand <laughs> how to layer correctly. You didn't know you need how to, to do that though. You got to right, have those right. days in the all cotton, just you know, three pairs of sweatpants on and <laughs> you sweat through them and then you're freezing or you're, you don't that's know right. how to layer socks or whatever it is. Like you need that stuff though. That's, that's right, man. That's right. And, and so it's been interesting to look back at that and, and how did I learn to not do the three pairs of sweatpants thing mm-hmm. anymore is by having this podcast and talking to literally some of the greatest hunters, whether known or not known, you know, that possibly talk to, you know, and the friendships that I've got. I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, most likely if, mm-hmm. I, if I didn't do um, first gen hunter and it's just opened up so many of those doors and I kind of sense that it would, you know, it's like, if I, yeah. if I put myself out there in the community, I'm going to get to meet some amazing people that is just, it, you couldn't even put a price tag on how valuable having a conversation like we're enjoying right now is, mm-hmm. you know, like, like it's awesome. We're already talked, we've talked about getting together and doing a spring Turkey hunt or yeah. doing some trout fishing or something, you know, that it'd be <clears throat> like, you can't, you can't, put a price tag on that, you know? Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious about what, what was your experience like then with your, um, you know, with your, with your family, as you started pursuing this, um, both hunting and podcasting and stuff, what, what has it been like? Um, what, you know, what, what are some of those conversations that have maybe been had, um, as you've started, you know, going down this, you know, path of, you know, becoming, you know, a more serious hunter and really getting into hunting and all that, um, in terms of, you know, balancing out, like you said, I'm going to be gone this day, or I'm going to take off of work this day, um, that kind of stuff. How, how have you just getting into this? Um, how have, how have you eased into it, I guess, is the the best way I can ask that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And 
I'm going to start by saying hunting is not a hobby for most people. For people like you and me, hunting is not a hobby. That's the mm-hmm. wrong term. Hunting is a lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, someone would roll their eyes hearing me say, oh, it's true. It, I'm not out there waxing a boat. I'm not out there, uh, you know, going to the driving range and whacking a few golf balls. Right. I'm not out there, you know, I'm sleeping in the rain. I'm, 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 you know, fighting frostbite, you know, I'm, I'm trudging through knee deep snow, look, following a blood trail, you know, like that's not a hobby. That's like, there's something else there that's forcing you to do that. You know, like there's, there's something wired inside of you. And, um, now I do think that like, there's plenty of casual hunters out there that, yeah, it is a hobby to them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, it probably ends the, as soon as they fill their gun tag or as soon as the gun season ends. Right. Right. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but that's not how it is for guys like you or guys like me. Um, it's, it's a, it's a call, you know? Um, and, and so I bring that up because, at first, I felt guilt because I'm asking a lot of my family to help me with my hobby. But I started to recognize that, like, I got to do this. This isn't this isn't a hobby. Um, this is part of who I am. And I think they started to recognize that as well. And they 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 started to recognize that like this is Kent's full expression of himself is when he's a part of this. And Mm -hmm. here's the, here's the results. Right. And so that that was a really smart question you asked because it, um, it recognizes that that evolution wasn't just on my end. Yeah. And, also recognizes that there has to be a lot of credit given to them for allowing me to express myself fully in who I am as a lifestyle hunter. Um, they've had to be patient and they've had to help pick up slack and they've had to show up and stay over with my kids and they've had to watch my kids at the last minute and they've had to say no to other plans to be there for me they've had to stay up late and help me load up a deer or drive out in the middle of a field in the middle of the night and, 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 you know, cut off on a deer in the freezing cold and, uh, you know, uh, help me hang a deer for butchering all that stuff. You know, like they've, they've all had to give up to, 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 to do that. They've had to mm-hmm. give up things to do that, give up time. And, um, so I'm forever indebted for that, but I think it also reflects what hunting was for our species originally. That's how Donnie Vincent said it the best in his, uh, I think it's called Who We Are, is the title of the YouTube video. I'd encourage everyone to watch that video, whether you hunt or not. Um, and what he says in that video is, every single one of us is here because somebody in our family was good at hunting. Um, meaning... If they weren't, 
our genetic line would have starved to death and no longer existed, mm-hmm. which is a pretty amazing thing to think about, right? Um, <laughs> there's people that aren't here today <laughs> because thousands of years ago, their ancestor was a bad hunter. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, uh, there, there's like, it's, it's part of who we are and what did it take for, you know, whoever it was in the family, you know, mom, dad, grandfather, grandmother, whoever it was that went hunting for the family, what did it take to be able to leave behind your children in an incredibly hostile environment where you could have, there's no law, there's no protections from a legal system, there's wild animals, there's all sorts of stuff that could, you know, take away, take away your offspring what made it possible for them to go out and get protein for their family and bring it back? Well, it took the rest of the family protecting their kids and right. making sure that the house didn't get, you know, burned down or robbed or, you know, like all that. So in a way, that's still just the same old thing. We're the same old cave people crawling around on this rock doing what it takes to to mm-hmm. to make it work. And And so I think they've they've uh you know they've they've evolved with me in that sense and uh I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and forever grateful that they've allowed me to serve the family in that way and you know when i can share with them the results man that's that's pretty special right so yeah that's that's a really smart question i'm glad i'm glad you asked that so but yeah. you know even still there's there's like times like like it takes a while for everyone to get on the same page you know mm-hmm. i think uh uh, I went on a bear hunt to Montana in uh, uh, spring of 22, and I went with a, a good friend of mine, John Rasty, and uh, we between the two of us, we came home with one bear. Um, he got a bear, and uh, I had missed my bear two hours before that. And, uh, you know, that, like, they never said any, like, thing like, and maybe it wasn't even so much for my family, but just from other people I know. Oh, you went on a bear hunt, and uh, well, that's a shame you didn't come home with something. You know, oh well, mm-hmm. you know. And and I see it not just in my own life, but I see it in a lot of other people's lives. To see somebody make a post about, oh, I'm out in Wyoming, you know, hunting elk, and then somebody you know that they know will will comment. Hope you get something this time. You know, like there's this implied this implied thought of oh it is a total waste of time if you don't come home with something right but you know how many things you have to get right to go out to Wyoming and harvest an elk mm-hmm. like there's like ten thousand things you got to get right and and if you get to the point where you're missing the shot like you got like nine hundred ninety nine or nine nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine things right you just didn't get the ten thousandth thing right yeah you know what I mean and and so like there's that that little bit of gap in understanding but i think my family at least my family i'm sure there's people there's definitely people still in my social circles that don't get it but they get it you know they're like yeah can't work his tail off and you got you know that like that alone just going out to montana doing a spot and stock hunt and essentially the rainforest of northwest montana you know mm-hmm. it's like it's like that's that's pretty crazy and that's pretty you know that takes a lot of skill and and determination and and so you know i think i think they've they've grasped that part of it too but 
definitely early in the days, you know, I think they probably wondered if I was just out there wasting my time. Right. Well, that was kind of why I wanted to ask that is because, you know, I think there is, especially if you're, you're somebody who's just getting into hunting um, or if it's a new hobby or a new pursuit that you're, that you're picking up, you know, it can often look like failure if you don't punch mm. a tag that year, or if you miss a shot right. or whatever, whatever, right. you know, happens as you work your way up the learning curve. And I think a lot of people, you know, you, you get a pass when you're 12 years old and you were shaking right. the leaf exactly. and, you know, your, your dad or your grandpa is right next to you. But if you're, if you're somebody who's out there on your own, figuring it out, you know, paying for it with your own money, with, you know, your own family to support, I mean, the flat out, the stakes are a lot higher. So that was, that that's really, really awesome to hear that they've been, uh, you know, so supportive of it. And man, I would love to get a, I don't know what sort of ologist, whether it be a psychiatrist or a sociologist or whatever, uh, I'd love to get somebody on just to like unpack, like what exactly is going on and like the inner wiring of our brains and like why we have that drive to, to go out and hunt and everything. I know we're coming up on time here, so I want to be respectful of that because you have another podcast you need to record. Um, mm-hmm. I've got one last question for you, though. Yeah. Kind of stemming off of that one, how has having a family and kids kind of impacted you as you know a landowner, an outdoorsman, um, and just really kind of shaped the way that you've approached picking, you know, getting into hunting and picking this up? Yeah, that's another really, really, uh, important question to ask. And I can't leave them behind. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that happens. I think, um, and there's guys that'll tell you that, that are, that are a couple, you know, they're a generation or generation and a half ahead of us. Some of the biggest names, especially in whitetail hunting, um, will tell you, yeah, I'm messed up. I lost my marriage because I was too hard after whitetail bucks or I, I neglected my kids because I was, you know, every weekend I was doing this. There's, there's guys that'll say that. And so I don't ever want to be in that case. I love my wife too much to leave her behind. I love my kids too much to leave them behind. Um, let's go back to the caveman example. Well, in, in, in biology, what is what determines if an organism is successful? If they pass on their genetic line, right? Their yeah. most precious thing is their their offspring, right? That is that that is the that is what determines if if a grizzly bear is successful. And that's why a sow grizzly will fight to the death to protect her her offspring, right? It's just hardwired in us, and so. I can't leave what should be the most important thing to me behind as I pursue these things. I can't make it all about myself. And there's time, and I'm not saying I'm perfect with that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I am too zeroed in and and focused on on the pursuit of game and not on the pursuit of my family. And so it's important to recognize that pitfall, first of all. Second of all, if they are supposed to be the most precious thing to me? How do I teach it to them? How do I, at the very least, give them an an understanding and appreciation for what hunting is and its importance in our society and our, and and let's even take society out of it, the importance of, to our species, 
um, that I need to include them, right? I need to, I need to sacrifice a good night of sitting in a better tree stand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, voice is getting dry. <clears throat> I need to sacrifice a night sitting in a premium tree stand <clears throat> because I need to be in that two-man ladder stand. I'm going to get a drink here. I'm sorry. You're good. <clears throat> Told you I had the gift of gab. I've been talking so much, I'm running out of voice. <clears throat> I need to sacrifice what I want sometimes to include them. Mm-hmm. I need to, um, maybe on a day that, yeah, it would be a great day to go deer hunting. I'm going to go pheasant hunting because they can participate in that better, you know. I need to make those choices. I need to buy them the equipment so they're comfortable and they want to be there and they're mm-hmm. safe. So you got to make that, that choice. Um, uh, you need to include them in the stuff that isn't just being out hunting when I'm butchering a deer. Um, actually, one of the coolest things this year, after I shot my doe with my bow back in October, um, my grandpa came out in the in the dark in the truck, helped me load, him up, load her up. My son, Jonas, uh, who's six, he rode along and, uh, grandpa had to go home. And so I, so my wife had to go to work. So I put my daughters to bed and Jonas and I had to hoist this deer up on the gambrel. And so what we did, I have a chain hoist now, uh, but before I had a chain hoist, we'd have to tie the rope running through the pulley, tie it to the hitch receiver on the truck and pull the truck forward and, and, you know, pull the deer up to the, to the roof. And Jonas Mm -hmm. is backing me into the shop and everything. He's using hand motions and that's good. Okay. You can back up a little bit more, you know, the old SpongeBob, you're good, you're good. And then I start bumping (laughs) into everything. No, that didn't happen. He did a good job. And then, uh, he, uh, you know, then he, and even before we were, we, uh, hoisted her up, he helped hold the flashlight while I'm, gotten around the tailgate of the truck and and uh, i'm showing him what the different organs are and showing him what we're going to keep and what what we can uh, let the the raccoons and coyotes and cats eat and mm-hmm. and uh, you know so like including him in all that and uh, my daughter came out the next night when i started butchering the deer you know uh, after letting her hang for a night um she sat there in her little lawn chair and my my four-year-old and just watched and talked with me and, and enjoyed the process. And so including them along the way in all aspects and, and hopefully at the very least, it's unlikely, let's be honest. And I think this is where a lot of parents fail. It's unlikely if you're passionate about something that your kid is going to be just as passionate about it as you are. It does happen. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time, but it is, I would say more likely that that's not going to happen. Right. It's just, we have an uncommon love for what we're doing. That's why we have podcasts on it. Right. And so is it, I mean, yeah, we always talk about, Oh, there's so many hunting podcasts now, but let's be honest. Let's compare it to the total number of hunters. It's probably like one in a podcast, right. Or even less. Um, so it's an uncommon passion that we have. And so to, for me to expect any of my children to, following their old man's footsteps, you know, it's just an unreasonable expectation. 
Now, do I hope that happens? Absolutely. You know, that's, that'd be great. But um, I'm not going to push them into it. They don't want to go. They're not going. Um, now, if you if they do say they want to go and they're there, you're going to tough it out and you're going to stick it out. You're going to you're going to learn some mental toughness. You're going to learn some some discipline. But I'm not going to force them into it. I'm going to present it to them and and hopefully uh, they're going to want to take it. They are hopefully going to though have an appreciation for conservation. I think I've already gotten there with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should hear the proselytizing my son does. It almost gets embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> you know. Yep, sure is a shame. That's all corn over there. That could be some nice <laughs> prairie. And uh, you know, it's like you want to smoke, careful. You know, like and 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 uh, That's you know, awesome. so there's 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 all that kind of stuff too. But you know, including them is the biggest thing, and and, and not just being there when it's time to hunt. Mm-hmm. Be there when you aren't hunting. You yeah. know, it, give them a reason to want to be associated with anything we're associated with. Um, I think that's another reason why a lot of parents you know classic uh t-ball dad right you will love this because i love this mm-hmm. and then where's dad when it's not t-ball games you know right is he at the bar is he at the bar all the time with his buddies is he watching tv is he on his phone is he reading the paper well if he is well then why are they going to want to be like you because you don't really seem to want to have anything to do with them you know what i mean yeah and so i think that's i think that's the other big part of it too is is you got to be there and include them when you aren't even hunting and, and uh, you know, then they're going to care about what you care about, I think, because they know you care about them and they know you're a good person and uh, they want to be, they want to be around good people. Everybody wants to be around good people, at least for mm-hmm. some, some point in their life. And uh, you know, it's important that we, we use that to be a good influence to them. But absolutely. And you asked me some tough questions. Those are good. <laughs> You provided some phenomenal answers to those things, though, man. That was, dude. I I love that, and that's something that I've been. I'm I myself. I'm I'm unmarried. I have no children. It's something that down the road I uh, I, you know, hope to be enjoying myself. But I it, it's something that, you know, it fascinates me, and it's it, just seeing how he, seeing and hearing how everybody juggles, the balance between you know working in this industry like we are and you know whether you're working in the industry or you're just a you know a passionate outdoorsman but you know balancing the family aspect of it getting the kids involved getting the wife involved you know all of that stuff i mean it's it because i mean at the end of the day that's what it's all about right like like Mm -hmm. you said like you want them to if that's something that they want to do down the road you know you want them to be the first or you want yourself to be the first person they go to to learn more about it and to get involved with it. Right. right. And I mean, exactly. And I, and I do want to say, and add, add to my answer too, that I have an incredible teammate. I couldn't, I couldn't do any of this without my wife. You know, mm-hmm. she's always, she has supported me more than, than anyone else I've ever, I've ever, I've ever met. Um, she's, she's just always been there for me. And I'm a lot different person than I was when I married her nearly 11 years ago. And she, she allowed me to change how I needed to change and, and be there all along the way. So that's such a huge, important part of this. So if anyone's listening in, then it's my job to be an incredible teammate back to her, right. And help her with her pursuits, whatever they are. And, uh, you know, all of us should seek to be that to our other person, to our, to our uh, teammate. Mm-hmm. 
just be a good teammate and, and have that mutual support, even when we don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, man. God, I love that. Well, dude, I know you've got another podcast you got to get to. I have enjoyed this so much. I've still got so many questions rattling around in my head. Uh, we didn't even get around to talking shed hunting, which I know you are oh, man. a shed hunting maniac. So oh, yeah. we're probably going to be hearing from you again, hopefully sometime soon, uh, before hey, springtime rolls around. And, uh, but before that, um, where can folks go to find you if they want to check out first gen hunter podcast, Prairie farm podcast, learn more about Hoxie, um, what you guys are doing over there. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much Pierce for having me on the show and, and I uh, just thoroughly enjoyed my time with you and, and, um, Likewise, man. need to get you, you on my podcast, man. <laughs> and, uh, Anytime. talk about, talk about your experiences and I'm looking forward to setting up a hunt with you at some point. Yes. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, the best place to find me would probably be on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at first dot gen dot hunter. And from there, I got a link tree in my bio, and that will take you to uh, the First Gen Hunter podcast, which is found on all podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find the First Gen Hunter podcast. And uh, then the Prairie Farm podcast, same deal, and that is run uh, through the company that I work for, Hoxie Native Seeds. And, uh, man, both both podcasts we i've just been so blessed with talking to incredible guests um uh you just scroll through them you'll see names that you recognize um that the first gen hunter podcast i'm confident will help anyone who wants to become a better hunter whether you've been hunting for 50 years or five months Mm -hmm. um the the quality of people that have been on there and sharing what they know you'll 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 be significantly better after listening to them. And that's how it's been for my, I'm the proof of that. Right. I'm, I've gotten so much better at hunting by talking with these people. Mm-hmm. And then, um, the Prairie Farm podcast, we talk about all things, conservation, farming. Um, there's a bunch of hunting content on there too. Uh, we we're supposed to get something lined up here with Mark Kenyon pretty, pretty soon from wire awesome. to hunt to talk. And we also, you know, here in, 17 minutes, I'm going to interview Sean Garrity, the founder of the American Prairie Reserve out in Montana. And, uh, you know, so it's a big, you know, big scope of who we talk to. We have a couple docu-series on there as well that are fascinating. One called the Prehistoric Prairie, um, which talks about how did we end up with prairie, um, where we interview all kinds of different experts um, uh, on different topics. We talk about all the megafauna, the extinct megafauna of, of uh, North America that were here at one time, mammoths, mastodons, giant ground sloths, saber-toothed cats, all that stuff. How does that factor into it? And then uh, my coworker, Nicholas, has a series on water coming out very soon. Um, so all that stuff is, awesome. you will find it fascinating. So uh, please check out all that, though, and reach out to me. I'm not one of those people who uh, isn't going to talk back. I, I love... I love having interaction with, uh, with folks. Uh, you, do you remember the days when, uh, I think it was field and stream had a cheers and jeers section yeah, at the beginning of the yeah. magazine. <clears throat> hey, here's what you got, right? Here's what you got wrong. Send me some cheers and jeers. You know, if you want to, if you think I got, I'm screwed up on my thinking, I need to know that. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, but maybe you're screwed up on your, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
but, but, uh, no, reach out to me. I love talking with anyone, you know, if you need some hunting tips, I love talking about that too, or mm-hmm. look at if you need a quote on seed or got questions for your CRP. Yeah. I'd be happy to help with all that and go to hoxnafseeds.com, see what we have uh, available there. So thanks so much though, man. Really yeah. appreciate you. Thank you. And folks really, I mean, seriously, you said it perfectly yourself there. The first gen hunter podcast is a I mean, it's just a phenomenal resource. That's actually how I found you. I was trying to learn more about hunting some river bottom bucks uh, on some islands. Uh, and I found that this past fall. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Awesome. And, you know, started digging through all the Jeremiah Haas. All the archives. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to get him on here soon. But just to, just to tantalize people on that too, Jeremiah Haas was the guy who uh, helped with reestablishing uh, um, alligator gar in uh illinois so we talk about that a little bit i think in that episode but but yeah just a cool dude that's awesome i got a buddy who's he's obsessed with fly fishing for rough fish like your gar your carp your bowfin like just those gnarly prehistoric fish i'm gonna have to tell him about that and uh he might even wind up on an episode here if he's not careful but um folks Go follow Ken on Instagram. Go follow those podcasts. Check them out. Ken, thank you so much for coming on, man. I know we kind of took, I stole the whole back half of your morning here, but dude, I, no, I great. enjoyed this so much and uh, I can't wait to do it again. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.